In our high school class this morning, we were talking about effective communication, and we were talking about feedback, and we are talking about how that feedback can be verbal or nonverbal. Ronald got some feedback quite quick that something was messed up on the slides. Uh, and so we can relate to that. It's good to see Mark here with us. Uh, I'm a little perturbed at him. This is his Sunday to preach, but he, he, he wouldn't do it. I don't understand. Uh, but we're glad that he's progressing. He goes back this week to get his stitches out, get his cast on, and maybe then he'll be a little more mobile. But uh, uh, good that things are going well so far and continue to pray that things will go well in that process. Well, we are now to the point that I can say I can see the end. And it's, it's quicker than you might think. This will be the last sermon out of Hebrews before we do a review next week. So, you know. But uh, we, have, we have been in the book of Hebrews for quite some time. Uh, this is actually the 30th. The 30th lesson out of the book of Hebrews. And we have seen that the theme we've been using as our theme, the idea of encouraging one another. And we've used this verse, encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold or hold firmly to the end uh, the faith that we had at first. I may have botched that, mixed some uh, translations in there together. But uh, we've looked at chapter 11. We spent some time in chapter 11 where faith is defined and faith is demonstrated, that great hall of fame of faith. And then chapter 12, where I kind of said, you know, faith is uh, rewarded, where it talks about how uh, God is going to reward us in the end and the day that we have coming in the end. And then chapter 13, we've been looking at is faith demonstrated. Okay, we've talked about what faith is. We've seen examples of faith. We know what our, our blessings are if we remain faithful. But what does faith look like? And so we've looked at what the writers had to say about loving each other and having hospitality and marriage and the marriage bed and the sacrifices of praise. And so today we have some final thoughts in verses 20 and 21. He says, may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with every good. For doing his will, for everything good, for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him. Through Jesus Christ, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so this is our writer's concluding thoughts. He he does a little, you know, goodbye kind of at the end. Uh, But these are his last thoughts. And as I was looking at them, I was trying to... To make all the things in these two verses kind of fit. And I'm not sure I did a very good job. So like our writer we talked about in chapter 13. That it seems like he just threw a whole bunch of things in there at the very end. Well that's what we're going to kind of do today as well. But I did think about the fact that he does talk about how that God equips us. You know God does not just tell us that we... He does not just command us. He does not just tell us that we have to do these things without giving us the wherewithal to accomplish it. You know, in politics, there's, there's a thing called, or in government, there's a thing called an unfounded, unfunded mandate. 
And what that means is, is that the federal government or maybe the state government requires something of maybe the local government or whatever without providing the monies to have it done. And I was thinking about, you know, perhaps way back when, when the American with Disabilities Act first came out and the federal government said, okay, you have to businesses and all these places, you have to have wheelchair ramps and you have to do all these things. We're demanding by law that you do these things, but we're not going to give you any money to do it. You got to come up with that yourself. Now, I don't know if that's what the government did or not, but, or the state legislature says to school districts. You now have to do this particular thing, but we're not going to give you the funding to do it. God is not like that. God did not say, here are my commandments. You have to do these things, but you are left to your own power, your own weaknesses, your own abilities. Instead, the very opposite. God said, I'm going to give you more power and more ability than you will ever need to accomplish the things that I'm going to ask of you. And so this morning, we're going to kind of look at what God has said and the power that he gives us. The first thing we notice is that he talks about the fact that we have a God of peace. Throughout the letter, we have been reminded of how much better off we are in Christ Jesus. We have a greater peace than could ever be imagined because of Christ Jesus. First of all, we have a peace with God. Isn't that amazing? Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, there has been this enmity. There has been this strife. There has been this conflict between God and man. And now through Jesus Christ, we have the opportunity to have peace with God. And not just peace. You know, the Bible talked about in the New Testament, the writers often try to remind us of of where we were before Christ. And Paul will often use the idea that, you know, we were enemies of God. We were the objects of God's wrath. But now we have peace through Jesus Christ. But it's more than just peace. You know, you can have peace and kind of hate each other. You know, detente, is that what they called it, I believe, between the United States and, and Russia back during the Cold War sort of thing? You know, we're, we're not going to shoot each other. We're not going to annihilate each other with our nuclear weapons, but we don't like each other. You know, we, we, we still, there's still some strife and enmity. And you know, God could have said, okay, I'm going to forgive you of your sins. I'm going to, to save you, but I'm still going to keep you at arm's length. I'm still going to keep that distance between us. But our writers tell us, and our writer of Hebrews, in fact, reminds us that we went from being enemies of God to being the very children of God with a divine inheritance. Wow. That's amazing. Not only are we no longer enemies of God, but we are his 
children. The apostle John tells us what kind of love this is that God has lavished on us as his children. He didn't just create a peace, a detente. He welcomed us into the family and gave us a rich inheritance. But not only do we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, we have peace with each other through Jesus Christ. You know, that was one of the, the main miracles, if you want to call it, of the early church, of the New Testament church. That through Jesus Christ, people who had been at odds with each other for centuries became one. And even before the church was established, in Jesus' own circle of friends. You know, this is one thing that I've never really thought about before. But, you know, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, right? Peter and Andrew were brothers and James and John were brothers, right? And what was their, what was their, their occupation? They were fishermen. And I can pretty much guarantee you, they were fierce competitors. Is it the, 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 I don't watch it, the wildest catch, the wild, the, what, dangerous catch? Yeah, I'm not listening, I can't hear, so. But it's some show on TV where these fishermen are fighting each other to get the good catch. Okay? Like I said, I've never watched it. I've seen the preview. That's Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Now, we don't know quite as much about James and Andrew, but we know enough about Peter and John. Remember that James and John were called the sons of thunder. And remember, it was James and John that wanted to call down fire from heaven to destroy the city that wouldn't accept Jesus. And we know about Peter, right? He's cutting off people's ears. He's ready to go. And so there they are on the Sea of Galilee, fending for their families, trying to provide. And I imagine they were competitors, maybe even enemies, and Jesus calls them. And they become his disciples, his apostles. There was James the Zealot. What's a zealot? A zealot was the Jew, one of the Jews who absolutely despised the Roman government. Despised everything Roman, everything Gentile, would never speak Greek in a million years, were the ones who were always trying to create a rebellion so that the Jews could throw off the shackles of the Roman government and they didn't want anything to do. James the Zealot, or Simon the Zealot, Simon the Zealot. And then there was Matthew, the tax collector. As if a tax collector wasn't bad enough. The tax collectors back then worked for the Roman government. Under any normal circumstances, Simon and Matthew would have been at each other's throats. There would have been fisticuffs. They would have gotten into all kinds of political debates and arguments. And yet in Christ, because of Jesus, they came together. We know about the Jews and the Samaritans. In the church, they came together. We know about the Jews and the Gentiles. In the church, they came together. We can look around the room today. 
And we can see some pretty significant differences among us. Some of us under normal circumstances would never get along with each other. You're just not my kind of person. I'm not your kind of person. We have different philosophies about this. We have different political views. We have different. We would probably not be friends. But in Christ, we are brothers and sisters. In Christ, we are unified. Because what we have in common totally overwhelms and overshadows any of the differences we might have under normal circumstances and in a normal situation. We have a common faith in God. We have a common experience. We have a common family. And we have a common hope. We're all going to the same place. If we don't like each other now, eternity is forever. Wow, I just made that up. That sounded pretty good. Eternity is forever. You can write that down if you want. You can quote me. It's a really long time. But we have that commonality because we have peace. God just didn't bring peace between us and him. He brought peace between each other. And then we are also ambassadors of peace to the world through Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that we have a treasure in earthen vessels. We are God's very own representatives here on earth. We are lights of the world. God has said that it is our job to bring this peace and share this peace with all the world. We don't keep it to ourselves. We share it with our neighbors, with our family, with our friends, with people we've never even heard of. In other parts of the world, we share the message of peace. Now, we've already seen in Hebrews That yes, God is a consuming fire. Yes, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God unprepared. Yes, there is a day of judgment coming. And God will bring justice. But he brought peace. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, not only had there been this, this, this conflict between God and man, but ever since Adam and Eve sinned, God had been preparing his plan to bring peace through his son, Jesus Christ. And so we have the power in our lives. We, we have the power to do what God wants us to do because of the peace that he has brought to us. Secondly, we also see that there is power through the resurrection. The the writer reminds us it is through the resurrection that God demonstrated his ultimate power. Peter said that Jesus was declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection. Paul tells us that our hope lies in the resurrection. You know, Paul Paul was talking to some people who had thought, who had the, the misconception that, you know... Jesus was coming again. They believed in that. But they thought that if you weren't alive when he came again, if you died before he came again, you missed it. 
So you can imagine you're trying to hang on, hang on, and your dying breath is just, you're, you're struggling with your dying breath to take one more breath because you're hoping that Jesus would come in that moment because you know if you died, you lost the opportunity to go to heaven. And Paul comes along and says, are you nuts? Well, that's not what he did. He says, it's not that at all. He says, if in this life only we have hope, we're the most miserable of people. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep. He said, Jesus is going to come again. And in fact, those who have fallen asleep will rise and meet him in the air before those of us who are left. We are convinced that Jesus died and rose again so we can be confident that there will be another resurrection, our resurrection. And that is the power that we have. Satan's power was diminished by the resurrection. You know, we sing that song sometimes, Up From the Grave He Arose. And I really kind of love the way that that song is, is written. You know, low in the grave, you know, and, and kind of, I'm not going to sing the whole thing for you. You're welcome. But you get the idea, you know, that, that it was dark and it was gloomy. And, and then all of a sudden up from the grave, he arose with the mighty triumph or his foes. And you kind of, there's another one called, uh, then came the morning. It's kind of the same, same kind of thing. But you get the idea that as Jesus is hanging there on the cross, that I don't believe Satan even knew. Satan did not, uh, Satan, now Satan has a lot of wisdom. Satan is smart. But I don't think Satan even grasped the plan of God. And here Jesus was, the Son of God, being crucified on a cross, being spit on, being taken down and his body thrown into a tomb. And I believe that Satan was throwing a party. I believe Satan believed he had won. I believe that Satan felt like he had conquered God. That it wouldn't be long before he would displace God. Because look what I have done. And then came the morning. Up from the grave he arose. Shattered Satan. Goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, remember? When God said to the serpent, there will be enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. As Jesus was hanging there on the cross, Satan was thinking, I have crushed God's head. I have won. And God said, you have just struck my heel. And on that first day of the week when Jesus rose from the dead, he crushed Satan's head. And that power of the resurrection is not just for Jesus Christ. It's for us. We have power through the resurrection. Because it's through the resurrection that we have a hope that will keep us going. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to quit. Because I know that God is going to raise me from the dead. I know that God 
is going to reward me in the end. Thirdly, he talks about Jesus being our great shepherd. You know, Jesus called himself the good shepherd in John chapter 10. Peter calls him the chief shepherd in 1 Peter chapter 5. But here in keeping with the theme of Hebrews, remember one of the other themes is better, greater, uh, superior. Our writer calls him the great shepherd. Last week we talked about elders. And we talked about how that the elders of the church are the shepherds of the church. And how they care for and feed the flock. Jesus is the great shepherd. Who cares not just for a flock in one single place, but the entire flock of God all over the world. In John chapter 10, verses 11 through 16, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The men, the man running away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep knows me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus gave his life for us. Jesus cares for us. Jesus feeds us and protects us and leads us. He is our great shepherd. And fourthly, we're reminded here, kind of as the theme for today's lesson, that we are equipped by God. We all know those verses, but in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. With the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. You know, we, we've mentioned this before, that description of the forces against us is daunting. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powerful, evil, spiritual forces of this dark world and, and all these different things that talked about Satan and his schemes and his darts and, and all of this. And if we had to go into that battle armed with only what we had, It would be a hopeless battle. But he didn't say, take up and put on the armor you got. 
He said, put on the full armor of God. You remember when David was going to face Goliath and he had to convince King Saul. Because uh, King Saul thought, you can't go face Goliath. And David said, I'm going. And Saul said, okay, well, put on my armor. And they put the armor on and you get the idea that, you know, we know that Saul was a big guy. Maybe David in his teens was kind of a small guy. And you kind of get that they put all this armor on him like, like you know, when, you're, when your little child tries to put on your shoes and the camera, and you get the idea that David was dressed up in all that armor of Saul, and he said, forget it. I don't need all this armor. Because I'm going in the name of God. And he takes the stones and he takes the sling. You know, the world may say, well, use this armor, use this. It's inadequate. It's not enough. But we put on the full armor of God because he has equipped us in that way. Galatians chapter 5 reminds us that we are equipped by the Holy Spirit. Remember we we talked about Galatians 5 beginning verse 23 where 22 and 23 we're talking about the fruit of the spirit. But the message really goes a little above that that we are to live by the spirit. Walk in the spirit. Be led by the spirit. And it is when we do that that we have the power then to allow the fruit of the Spirit to grow within us. The Spirit is our guide, our leader, and our empowerer. Empowerer. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, we find out that God also equips us through His Word. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God has given us his word. He's given us the manual. He's shown us how. To do the things that he wants us to do in our lives. You know, I have bad experiences with owner's manuals and instructions on putting things together. Now, some of you are going to say it's probably not the fault of the manuals. I would disagree. But you've all have probably been there where you were trying to put something together and you had this manual, these instructions. They were telling you how to do it and the instructions were totally inadequate. First of all, they were written in Chinese. Or they were translated into English by someone who spoke Chinese. Or the pictures were upside down. Or they skipped a step. Or this or that. And it gets so frustrating. But God has given us what we need to thoroughly equip us, completely equip us, totally equip us for every good work. Now, we need to learn how to use what God has given us. We need to learn how to apply what God has given us. 
I've told you before, it's like I know when the kid used to have to take their TOS test or their tax test or their TEKS test or their whatever test they call them now, STAR test. What happened to the T, you know? Anyway, okay, you know, these crazy tests they have to take. And, and, and depending on what grade you were in, and it was the math part, they would give you a formulas chart. It, would, it might be, you know, how to find the perimeter of a square or how to find the area of a circle or whatever. And it would give you the formula. But the problem was, if you didn't know how to use that formula, If you didn't know how to apply that formula to the question that was written, the formula did you absolutely no good. But I would say to you, I've given you everything you need. It's all right there. True? True. God's given us everything we need. Thoroughly equipped us. But we have to learn to use it and to apply it to our lives. And then he says, we also spur one another on. That's another way that we are equipped by God. Have you ever thought that you are a tool of God? You're a tool of God to equip me, to help me be better. And we looked at that verse in Hebrews 10 where he says, we spur one another on to love and good works. You are a tool in God's hands. And then he's just given us power we cannot imagine. Those verses we love at Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than all we can ask or imagine. Through his power that is work within us. Wow. Wow. He didn't just give us a little power. He gave us more power than we can ask or imagine. And so we please him. We are equipped for everything good, he says, in every aspect of our lives. He says that we are called to be holy. We are set apart. We are different. We're the light of the world. We're the salt of the earth. We are Christ's ambassadors. Jesus said, be perfect. Even as my heavenly father is perfect. He says we offer spiritual sacrifices, sacrifice of praise, living sacrifices. We are God's workmanship, Paul said, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And he didn't just tell us to do that. He gave us the resources to do that. He has empowered us. He has equipped us to live the lives that he has called us to live. In all that we do, we live to please God. By all of our actions, by all of our speech, by the way that we treat others, by our love for one another, by all of our servant service, we live to please God. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, am I living in a way that pleases God? Not part of the time. Not on Sundays. Not when I'm around other Christians. But am I always living my life to please God? In everything that I do, am I living to please God? 
And the way I treat my friends at school and the way I treat my co-workers or the way I treat my family or the way I treat my neighbors or the way I treat a total stranger at Brookshire's. Am I living to please God? The way that I speak to other people, the way that we love one another, am I pleasing God with my life? And we might say, oh, that's tough. Oh, that's hard to do all the things that God wants us to do. It may be. But he's given us everything we need. He's provided the power. He has given us the equipment. He's equipped us to live the lives that he wants us to live. A reminder that God hasn't just called us. He has empowered us. He has equipped us. And we should live our lives as empowered people. If you're here this morning, there's some way we can help or encourage you. We invite you to come now as we stand and as we sing. We hope by listening to this lesson, you have found a better understanding of the Bible. And through that better understanding, find a closer relationship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ, our living Savior. If you have any questions or desire more information, please feel free to contact us here at the Dangerfield, Texas Church of Christ. You can find us at dfield.org. That's D-F-I-E-L-D-C-O-C dot O-R-G. Or you can email at dfieldcoc779 at aol.com. Or you can call us at 903-645-2888. Nine six. If you are local to the Dangerfield area, we would love an opportunity to meet you and encourage you in person at 818 West W.M. Watson Boulevard, Dangerfield, Texas, 75638. Our meeting times are Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. for Bible class and 10.30 a.m. for worship service, Sunday evening at 6 p.m. for worship service, and Wednesday evening at 6.30 p.m. for our midweek Bible class. Grace and peace be with you always.